Welcome back to Answering Religious Error. This is our Wednesday live Bible Q&A. We come to you each Wednesday at the Lord Wills at noon Eastern Standard Time. We want to thank you all for joining us today. And if you have any questions uh, for our program, this is your program. Uh, submit those questions to answering, or excuse me, questions at answeringreligiousera.com. That's our email address. But if you're watching on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel, uh, you can post a question there and uh, we can get to it or add it to the list for a future study. We are, um, of course, being shared uh, this page through Facebook uh, to many other uh, resources. But if you're watching us through a shared page, we won't be able to see your comments. So you'll have to go to the Answering Religious Error page in order for us to see it. But we want to thank everyone for sharing, liking and subscribing and telling everyone about Answering Religious Error as we answer your Bible questions. But also, we have a Bible study on Tuesdays. Again, that's at noon Eastern Standard Time. Right now, we're going through a series of lessons entitled, Why I Believe. And so please tune in for that. Uh, schedule your Tuesday afternoon uh, for Why I Believe every Tuesday at noon Eastern Standard Time. And you can check out these programs after they air in a podcast uh, if you just tune into your favorite podcast, if you're a podcast listener, you know what I'm talking about. You can listen to us throughout the day, which reminds us that you want to start the day with the Daily Answer podcast. And that's with Mark Dunnigan as uh, he shares about 15, 20 minutes of uh, uh, stories about godliness, um, aspects of his life, the things that he's experienced. And I think you'll be greatly encouraged if you tune into the Daily Answer. And that's as early as 5 a.m. Monday through Friday. He has well over 200 episodes, and you can go back and listen to the Daily Answer podcast. Well, today, we want to bring up our panel and introduce the men that will be answering your questions today. We have Nick Greenman. I'm Chris Kramer filling in for Brian Garlock. And we have Brian Haynes and Stephen McCrary. And then Colton McDaniels uh, working with us in the background, running our questions. And we appreciate his work today. So how are you guys doing today, and um, how's the gardening? <laughs> doing well. Like I said, I got that watermelon out. I don't know. I, I, you look for the little, little tendril on the other side, like the little curly cue. Once that gets brown, you pick it. So that's what I did. We'll see what happens. Okay. Simple, easy to remember. <laughs> Before we begin, we're going to uh, bow and give thanks to God uh, for our blessings. And so uh, please bow with me. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer, thanking you for this opportunity to um, bring a portion of your word to the questions that people ask and uh, what's on our minds, that we may be able to search your scriptures to find the, the biblical and godly answer to the things pertaining to this life and the life to come. We're thankful for this avenue in which we can come uh, to people all over the world, and we're thankful that they're listening. We're thankful that they're sharing this message and that they will search the scriptures themselves to find out what is so and find saints in their area to worship you, give praise, honor, and glory to your name in all that they do. Please uh, be with us on the panel today that we may search your scriptures for the wisdom to find the answers uh, to the questions that are submitted. And uh, we thank you for all things through your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right, as always, we like to start uh, the show before our questions with a segment we call Meme Time. Our meme comes today from, um, as they do quite often, from uh, atheists who often want to discredit God, discredit the Bible, and of course, in this meme, uh, discredit the church. And it comes down to this. If you worship a God 
who sacrificed his grown son to fix a problem he created, you are part of a death cult. If you pretend to eat and drink your dead savior, you're part of a death cult. If you only get rewarded for your loyalty after you die, you are part of a death cult. So, gentlemen, uh, what are your thoughts on this? One thing that comes you know, to I was my thinking mind. the same thing. <laughs> no, go ahead, we, we, we need that crickets uh, to start chirping here. Now, one thing that comes to my mind is, uh, I mean, we all have to face death. I mean, death is something that is real and true and that everyone cannot escape it. And so just because we have a, a hope of an eternal life, uh, you shouldn't just uh, trash us by calling us a death cult. Uh, that's a that's a lot of ignorance speaking in that. And and so it, it's not uh, it's not really addressing the situation. How do you deal with death? How do you deal with, uh, uh, you know, your sins or or what's to come next and so there's there's a lot of questions that need to be be asked and answered and just trying to throw out this uh railing accusation is really not dealing with any of it and, and we could go line by line and just really uh expose the ignorance of the atheist in this in this particular meme but my first and foremost uh, thought goes to well we have to deal with death because everyone is staring death in its face Um, you know, the word cult is a charged word. Um, it is a word like like racist. It's a word that once it's thrown out there, you really haven't got an easy way to deal with it. Um, we were kind of joking about this before the show uh, as we were talking about this word, that anything you say after you get accused of being in a cult is, well, that's exactly what a cultist would say. Um, and the word cult is so ambiguous. It really doesn't have a definition. So you can throw out there and you could say people that that love the, you know, uh, the Dallas Cowboys or a cult. Well, I don't love them, but I wear their shirt. Well, that's exactly what a cult would do. Um, you really are stuck in this scenario where it's a, it's a nonsense word, uh, homophobic. There's lots of words like this that float around today and they get thrown out there because they disable any kind of intellectual argument. I think people ought to be aware of how that works and understand that when somebody throws a word like that, they don't want to debate. They don't want to engage in ideas. They just want to shut you down and, you know, silence you. And so with somebody throwing out an expression like this, you know, for, for things that they, they're just defining what the word cult means. They're saying, well, you know, God did this thing that makes it a cult. Uh, you know, you know, we don't, we don't worship a, a dead savior. We worship the risen ones. Why not call us a, a resurrection cult? You know, I mean, the whole point is, that once we get that word cult in, it's it's a term that just has no value and no meaning. And I think we have to consider it that way and appreciate that uh, that, that whoever wrote this, and it probably was somebody ahead of time, uh, whoever wrote this isn't somebody who cares at all for intellectual discourse. They just want uh, to insult and silence people. Yeah, I'm seeing three different straw men here. Um, you know, uh, a problem he created okay um you know who was it that took the fruit who was it that acted upon those things who was it that tempted them uh you know he didn't create the problem i mean number two pretend to eat and drink your dead savior that's not what i'm pretending to do uh do you realize what symbolism is do you understand what that is and that you can do something that symbolizes something else uh thirdly um, I have many rewards in my life in Christ right now. 
And in fact, the New Testament uh, is very strong in the way it talks about how you are not just waiting for heaven. You are living the resurrected life now in the kingdom. So, uh, you know, this is just nonsense. Uh, people, people like this, as, as is said, there's no real discussion here. There's no real point here. It's just you're beating up on this straw man so that you can, you know, congratulate yourself. I, I wonder, I see this little rainbow flag by Atheist Girls thing. I wonder if it would be uh, fair to say that perhaps, I, I don't know for sure what her stance on the whole COVID thing was, but one of the big things that uh, that a lot of people said at the time were, if it could just save one life, you know, we can, we, we need to do all these things and push all these things to just save one life. That sounds like a cult to me. Uh, you know, and I think the the sense that we understand is that that behavior is such that you you find people in this world that act that way. And uh, one thing one of the things that we need to realize is that religion is inevitable. You will follow a religion of some sort, even if you don't call it a religion. It will still be a basis of values and morals that you're you're living by and you're holding yourself to. So uh, again, this is just complete nonsense and uh, it's pretty easily uh, easily batted aside, frankly. I think what I would encourage people to do is be careful of the, uh, the terminology that people use when they're trying to discredit um, any type of organization. And, and sometimes we're in danger of doing that as members of the church as well. Uh, so don't get caught up in the talking points that people like to use. Uh, they'll throw out terms like cult, and they couldn't even describe a cult to you. If they really did any research, they'd realize uh, there's no manipulation. There's no brainwashing here. There's there's all nothing but free will uh, in regard to, uh, you know, serving a God who loves us, who did all these things for us. And whereas you want to put a spin of negativity because of the way that you view life. And by the way, how do you know the difference between right and wrong or death and life? I mean, God wants us to uh, live this life, but he also, uh, you know, has no really regard for the big picture and the fact that this body is not going to go to heaven. We're going to have a home in heaven in a spiritual sense. So to, to leave this life, which Paul the Apostle says in the Philippians letter, uh, is, is far better to go and to be with Christ. Uh, to maintain a new spiritual existence. Uh, that's what we're striving for. There's so much beauty in regard to even what the death of a Christian may bring. Uh, we should go to the house of mourning, as the scriptures say, so that we can gain perspective on, on you know, this life and what we should be applying our lives to. We should be walking according to the conduct of godliness while we're here. And with that in mind of knowing that death does inevitably inevitably come, uh, we prepare ourselves for the life to come. A lot of people aren't living that way. And where do you get your moral standards from? And we could go back to the problems of atheism all day long, but this, this term death cult, it's, well, it's just stupid. And it's just something that people like to say to rile people up and they can't even uh, define it. We will be rewarded after we die. We will be rewarded for the work that we do here upon this earth. And sadly, uh, those who do not obey the gospel of God will be rewarded for their work as well. And when you say rewarded, again, doesn't always mean a good thing. 
So be careful of the terminology that you throw around. Any other thoughts on this idea before we continue? All right, let's look at our first question then as we talk about uh, <laughs> death cults and uh, the ideas that there are things in this world that even we as Christians judge and deem to be uh, negative or bad. And somebody posed the question, did God create sin? Again, these are things that sometimes people get their minds wrapped around to think, well, you know, if uh, if we have life and God put us here on this life, I mean, and we have sin, where did it come from? And, and everybody wants to know the origins of things. So uh, what are some of your thoughts, guys? Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, nobody wants to jump in right away. Uh, I, I don't blame you guys at all. Um, one thing to think about is that uh, the word sin, you know, in Spanish, the word sin means without. It's, it speaks to the idea of something that is not, not something that is. Sin is the absence of righteousness, or I'm going to use the word godliness, uh, the godlikeness. So sin is the absence of godlikeness. Uh, it kind of then fits to say that God can't create ungod. God can't make something that's that's not him it's uh it's it's counterintuitive even to the laws of physics uh that you can't make something that is from something that is diametrically opposed to something that would uh, that would make sense so one thing we want to consider is that the idea of sin is not that sin exists in a sense of it's a thing that somehow or other people grabbed onto and held onto that sin exists because people have departed from god people have uh you're probably familiar with the greek uh language and how the word sin in greek is refers to an archer who misses the mark and uh, he's outside of the target, um, that the idea is it's not it's not something that exists we grab onto, that God made and then man found. Sin is that which departs from the concepts of God. So uh, it would be impossible for God to make sin by the nature of those things. I, I actually really feel like uh, uh, Chris actually did a good job kind of leading into this to say there's a lot of times where we're asking questions about things that the Bible doesn't necessarily answer. And sin really couldn't be answered that way because there's, as I said, it doesn't actually work that way. But even things like, you know, where does Satan come from? Where do angels come from? These are a lot of questions the Bible doesn't answer. And so a lot of people then create a hypothesis that might not be accurate um, because they're just really desperate to answer things. The questions I do know is I know where sin comes from in my life. It comes from my desire, James chapter one says, and my desire for things gives birth to sin and then sin when it's full grown leads me into death. I know exactly where every sin I've ever committed comes from. I can track it down right to the source. I know why I did it. I mean, uh, you know, or I could, I should say, know why I did it, everything about it. And that's really what I'm concerned about, the sin in my life. Because uh, as far as that goes, it doesn't matter who else sins in this world. Um, I, I, fundamentally, I have to bear my own load. Uh, Galatians chapter six speaks about I have to be responsible for what I've done somehow. And I have to find uh, one who can deal with that for me, which is through Jesus Christ. So that's one thought to consider. I guess I would also say that sin uh, is is the absence of, um, well, it's transgressing God's will. I mean, there are other terms to use for it. And to be in Christ uh, means that we are saved uh, from that sinful state. Um, you know, and of course, the you know, end result of these things is, you know, eternal condemnation. There are consequences for sin. And so uh, could God have from the beginning just left it open for anybody and everything to just live how they want and to... Um, you know, not set any rules. Um, 
you know, we, we would call that chaos. I mean, even the atheist, of which we addressed a few moments ago, I'm sure has a standard of morality uh, that they got from somewhere. I've met some very nice atheists in my life who said, I just want to live by the golden rule. And I'm like, well, you know, that's a, that's a godly principle. You know, that's, you know, what Jesus taught that uh, we do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not something that we just inherently know by nature, uh, but it's something that we are taught. I mean, how many times as parents, and we're all parents here, had to tell our children, you know, to behave and to act in the right way and to say please and thank you and to share. And the list went on and on in regard to our sense of morality. Where did all that come from? It came from our creator, our God, because he knew that inherently man has this tendency to you know, disregard truth. I mean, if I, I joke about this, but it's not, you know, it's not a biblical term. But, you know, had Adam and Eve not sinned with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, somebody would have. <laughs> I mean, I say that in kind of a you know, critical way toward the human human race. Uh, but um, at the same time, you know, God does give us rules to live by and we can't. Uh, we don't have to live in sin. Being in Christ frees us from that sin. And so what God has done is he's given us a way out of it. And he's looking at us going, here's the gift. You know, you don't want sin. So why don't you take my gift? Uh, you know, and I think it's God that's sitting here questioning us going, what's the problem here? <laughs> you know, what are some of your other thoughts, guys? Well, what you bring up, it, it kind of makes me think about you know, uh, what I've said before, if, uh, if Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus, someone else would have, um, I, I still believe that Judas had free will and could make the choice whether or not to do what he did. And, and that's kind of the thing that you're really getting into here, right? Because I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm also thinking about, you know, the, the, when Jesus in Mark three is being accused of, uh, healing people of unclean spirits by the ruler of the demons. He's allied with them. And so he's using that power to do this. And Jesus just, you know, says, why would Satan work against his own interests? You know, um, but at the same time, if God did create sin and then created salvation for sin, that, I mean, that sounds like a racket to me. That sounds like he created the problem to fix the problem, right? That's not, inherently moral or just that's that's something that's that's not right uh in terms of what we find out about what right and wrong is from god so i have to conclude that that's rather impossible and if i carry on with that mindset then i run the risk of being in this mindset where i sin against the holy spirit mark three because i'm calling the good work of god which is salvation i'm calling that a bad thing when in reality, God is saving us. God is uh, giving us light, leading us out of the darkness uh, that we created. That is our fault. Uh, we have to admit that. And so I, I think there, and I don't think, I don't necessarily assume that the questioner has that in mind. I just think it's important that we, we note that there's a, there's a certain uh, uh, way that we could go about this that, that can really cause some problems for us spiritually. All right. Any other thoughts in regard to that? Well, I'm Except trying to thoughts. find. I'm trying to find the, the the quote. But I was reading the other day about um, this atheist, and I think his name was Tom Holland, who was 
who is a historian and he was looking back at ancient human history and how brutal and cruel uh, mankind is. And no, not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, by the way, this is the historian Tom Holland. Um, and he, he was noticing how uh, like the Spartans uh, would just mercilessly kill their deformed children. And, and, and there's example after example of the brutality of man. And he asked the question, well, what changed? Why are we the way we are today with all of our mercy, compassion, and uh, the um, uh, humanity that exists today? Where did that come from? And as an atheist, he traced it back to Christianity. And, and we as Christians have uh, brought about this uh, this, I guess some people will call it Western culture. I don't know, but this, the society where there is humanity, where there are morals, where there is a, a concept of justice. Uh, and, and, and so just because, um, you know, there are atheists going back to our meme who try to discredit us. Uh, there are atheists who are coming to terms with a, Hey, there's actually something to be said about, about the integrity of Christians. Uh, I think even, uh, Oh, what, what's that atheist over there in England? Richard Dawkins, is that his name? I, I think he's even said things to that nature, too. Uh, and, and so uh, Christianity has a lot to offer. And we have, through Christ, Christ has changed the world. The last 2,000 years are very, very different than the way the world was before Christ came. And and so don't count Christians out. And, and why did God create sin? So that he could deliver us. Uh, well, he didn't create sin, but he created the path away from sin. We we brought sin and, and corruption upon ourselves because we had that free will. But God gave us a path to of escape. And and I think uh, looking at all of this from the meme prior to this question and all of it encompassing, uh, Christianity has a lot to offer. And, and so don't dismiss us with just name calling. Let's sit down and actually talk about these things. Excellent points. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the beginning when we talk about Adam and Eve and the choices that they made. Uh, God didn't create sin. In fact, for for the moment, they are, you know, living sin free, uh, if you will. And of course, God gave them a choice, even being sinless for a time. God gave them a choice. And that's what everybody wants today. A lot of times we're judging God by our standards today. And by standard, I'm talking about maybe what society thinks or what's going on in the world. But when we define sin, again, I think I kind of already made mention of this, but just to give you a couple of scripture references here, first uh, John uh, three and verse four says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. I mentioned transgression earlier and I was trying to look for that word lawlessness, but uh, the scripture also says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yesterday in our program, we talked about, uh, you know, some of the reasons why people even come to the Lord. And a lot of times it's because of, uh, you know, they're downtrodden, they're in sin. They want a respite from those things. And Jesus Christ is the answer. What about the people, though, that think, oh, I'm a good person. You know, I'm, I'm you know, life's good for me. I've got all the blessings I want and so on and so forth. They immediately have this idea they don't need God or they don't need Jesus Christ as though God and Christ are really only there for the times when we're in trouble, for the times that when we are in sin, uh, and even sometimes, you know, the worst, you know, people of the world, the wicked man, as Proverbs 6 describes it, 
uh, has some standard of morality. He has some expectation of how he wants to be treated. He may not treat people that way, but even the liar doesn't want to be lied to. The murderer doesn't want to be murdered. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Everybody has an understanding of morality, the difference between right and wrong. And usually it comes down to what happens to them. Uh, we need to be asking ourselves as God's people, what, what can I do for God? I always appreciated the passages that talk about pleasing God and obeying his will. I mentioned a little earlier, Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse, uh, verse 8. I didn't read it out loud, but in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We make the conscientious choice to sin. It may be a sin of, we might talk later about omission or commission, but being out of a relationship with Christ is a sinful relationship. You might be a good person. You might have a certain set and standard of morals, but without Christ, you're in sin. And it's been like that before we ever existed. And so um, we, we know what we need to do in regard to our responsibilities. All right. What are, what are some other questions we've got then? Go ahead with the next one. Can you please comment on synergism and monergism? Uh, those are some fancy terms like uh, we see in our world today. Of course, the thought uh, process of these two terms has been around for a long time. It gets down to some of what I was talking about before about our own free will or our choice to do things. Do we need, uh, you know, is God going to do it all for us? Uh, or do we need to help him along the way? How do we describe these two terms? $20 words. That's the idea I would say. I'll bet, I'll bet most of our listeners probably even haven't heard these terms, which is okay. Um, but you're probably familiar with the idea. Um, the simplest definition I found, I was looking up different ways to define these words. These are words that aren't just religious words, they business words and things like that. But it's the idea of working together or working alone. Um, synergism means things working together and monogism means things working alone. So when you talk about salvation, uh, monogism is basically what John Calvin and others teach, that God works all by himself with zero input from a human being in order to save us. Whereas synergism says that somehow God and man work together uh, in order to bring about our salvation. Probably most of our listeners, once they kind of hear that, say, oh, I know which one is which, or I know which one is right and which one is wrong. They're going to they're gonna look at synergism. They're going to say, well, that, that fits statements like um, uh, you know, a work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you know, or, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of the expectations of God towards man, the idea that even if man's contribution to our salvation is, is nominal or even not even uh, affecting, uh, things in a way, in other words, the, the, the true effect of salvation, it is required. It is a, uh, expectation or a condition of our salvation synergism. So if you were to hear that in a religious statement, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, you a synergist or a monergist, um, hopefully most of our readers would or listeners would say, uh, well, you know, uh, having read the Bible sounds like it's synergism to me. Well, the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, uh, verse eight seems to answer the question for me, even though I know that those who believe in monergism will go to that verse two to try to justify their position. Uh, when you really look at that verse, you can see that it is really supporting the idea of synergism. So Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, it says, uh, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. The grace is God's part. Faith is our part. We have been saved by grace through faith. I mean, it's working together here. I can't deny it at all. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, obviously, we can't be saved apart from God. There's there's no amount of work we can do to justify demanding God give us salvation. That's not not at all at all our position. But the idea that God gives us the opportunity to be obedient. grace and and so that conviction that faith to put that into practice as synergism well part of what you said there toward the end you're freezing up a bit nick um but uh it kind of goes back and i I love your reference to you know ephesians chapter two because you know in there it shows that yes are we saved by grace you know absolutely but this is again people want to go to the scriptures and say we're, we're saved by faith only you know the faith only advocates they want to leave out anything that that we need to do but verse 10 just kind of shows how it all comes together how it works in the fact that uh, we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works now here's the catch which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and um okay so contrast that with our works all right yeah I'm not saved by my works or I'm not saved by the works of if you want to put it in the, you know, the box of the the old the old law, for instance, which, you know, a lot of the scriptures in the New Testament are uh, having to you know counteract uh, the Jews coming out of the old law. But whether whatever it might be, uh, you're not going to be saved by works that God has not created for us in through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what the grace of Christ is all about. This plan or scheme of redemption that God has given us uh, to give us this salvation based upon doing his works and not our own. This topic also kind of branches into the, you know, the aspect of how much the Holy Spirit guides us and directs us, which most of the time we would just try to pretty much say, hey, you know, the Holy Spirit revealed the word. He gave us the instructions to follow God's will. It is the sword of the spirit. And, um, you know, to go beyond that is bringing in the idea of modern day miracles and, and whatnot. Brian, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I uh, just noticed something that David Cambridge had uh, said in our chat. He had mentioned the problem is they say that faith is a gift given. David's 100 percent correct. And what's happening there is that there are people that approach the scriptures with a preset mind that they say, monergism they say that's actually all it is and they don't actually read what the bible says they force what they're thinking into what the bible says um david is is hitting as a, a profoundly important idea that most uh most protestants are going to say that faith is a gift from god not an act of man now nick just said i'll point to nick nick just said that uh faith is a work of man and jesus said that jesus says you know here's the work here's the work you do you you believe you know faith is is our work. Faith is mentioned uh, hundreds of times in the New Testament. Not one time is faith described as something that God is doing towards us. It's described as something we are doing towards God. Um, anybody who is reading it that way, and, and David, uh, appreciate that comment because you're 100% right. Anybody who's reading it that way is intentionally violating the text because of a preconceived notion. They are absolutely tearing apart the statement of the scriptures about the actual workings of faith. 
that that I mean the very basis of faith it comes by hearing the word of God it's without works it's dead the, the very concepts of faith that are the core definitions of faith are being ripped apart uh, for somebody to be able to say, well, God is the one giving us faith. It's the gift of God. And therefore, you know, all the statements about faith are actually irrelevant. Um, really remarkable. And David, that's a great comment. I mean, I would add to that, that there is a sense where faith is a gift in the sense that we're given the knowledge from God concerning what to believe. Um, if, you, if you're going to say that faith is a gift in that sense, okay, but it's still my decision to believe and to trust that that's necessary. Um, and that doesn't merit anything. I mean, I think it's very important that we realize uh, it doesn't matter. Like I could do tons and tons and tons of good things that I find in the Bible, but it still wouldn't merit salvation. It doesn't matter how much I would do. The, the thought of it being meritorious uh, has nothing to do with it. And, and it's very important that we note that and we distinguish that, that we don't, we don't say that this is a merit toward us. Uh, who's going to go into the baptistry and be baptized and come out and well, look at this big thing that I just did. You know, I mean, that's, it's absurd. Uh, you went in there and Peter tells us that this is the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's all that happened. You, you said, God saved me. Uh, so uh, the, this is a, a lot of this is really just um, I don't know if I, <laughs> the, the term gaslighting keeps coming up to me, but like that, that really that that's the thought behind it is that this, this, the steamroll aspect to say, well, there's, there's no other way it could be uh, when really there's just a ton of text in the scriptures that, that really creates problems for, for that view. I was speaking to a Lutheran pastor uh, a few years ago, and he took me to Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, where we were having this very conversation about the distinction between what God gives and, and what we're able to do. And he was making that very point that, you know, God gives us these things. It's nothing on us. So he was absolutely a, a monergist. Um, and the verse says, um, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so it, it actually says that God gives repentance where we would argue, well, isn't repentance a work that we do? And, and so he's like, well, here's the verse that says that God gives it to you. <laughs> and so, uh, so we do need to wrestle with this. We, we do need to address it because it is an argument that is a, a highly broadcast out there. Uh, but the idea that God gives you something, gives you the opportunity to do something, does not neglect, as Stephen said, our responsibility to do it. Uh, you know, if, if if I went out there and just decided to come up with my own uh, list of things, say, well, this is what I'm going to do and go out there and demand God give me salvation. That's going to uh, that's, that's going to get me nowhere. Uh, I say, well, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest and God's going to give me salvation. No, I just climbed Mount Everest. You know, I wasted all that time for really didn't even achieve the goal I was looking for. Uh, but when God gives you the opportunity, that's when you can uh, can act on it. And that is faith in action. So God does give faith. God does give re the opportunity to repent. Um, and the idea of, of grace, the definition that is commonly used, the unmerited favor definition, I think really uh, confuses the point. Yes, sure, uh, the favor that we receive from God uh, 
you know, do we really deserve it? Absolutely not. I mean, we deserve to go to hell, but God gives us favor anyway. And so in that in that sense, sure, we can define it as unmerited favor, but still we're not defining what grace is. And and so when you go back and just really look at grace as a gift, it is just another way of saying gift, as, as uh, David was mentioning, faith is a gift. We can begin to wrap our mind around it a little bit better because when when do we uh, receive gifts? Uh, we receive gifts all the time, and we're grateful for that. Grateful being related to the word grace, and so I say thank you. So any opportunity that I have to say thank you, that could be described as I've received a grace. I've received a gift. In the Spanish language, uh, how do you say thank you? You say gracias, and in the Spanish language, how do you say grace? Gracias. It's the exact same word. So to say thank you is to have grace. And what has God given us that we can be thankful for? Well, the greatest gift is mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that is the grace that we oftentimes talk about. But there's other graces that he gives us. What about the food that he gives us daily, the daily bread that he gives us? Well, do we not say grace at the table to say thank you for this food that you provided for us? Why, sure we do. So wrapping our mind around what grace is helps us appreciate that God does grace us with things, but that does not neglect our responsibility to do things. If a man does not work, then let him not eat. But yet we still say, thank you, God, for giving us this food. But we went out there and worked for it. And so it's it's all working hand in hand together. Uh, we are working together. So synergism is the best definition to see it all across the board in action. You know, one thing I would quickly course, add. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Well, I just wanted to quickly add, look at look at the faith statements of Jacob in the book of Genesis. You see a development there. You see it at the start in Genesis 28, if God will be with me, this I'm in Genesis 28, verse 20, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. That is just a very basic sense of a faith statement of saying, if you do this for me, then I will I will worship you. But that develops throughout the course of the book of Genesis. To, at the end, he's got a very graceful attitude and thought concerning his relationship with uh, with God. And, uh, and that's the thing really to grab hold on here. Uh, there are some very basic things that you start with, but that relationship develops throughout your life. Sorry about that. I hit the wrong button. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's important to understand. And, you know, we throw out a lot of terms here, uh, whether you're talking about synergism, monergism, whether you're talking about unmerited favor, things like that. Again, uh, it always helps to define things in, in, in biblical terms. And I know the Bible has been translated into our various languages that we speak. But, uh, you know, I, I struggle with the term unmerited uh, quite a bit. <clears throat> it's easy to say, OK, how do you define you know, grace and people say unmerited favor. Then you got to spend 20 minutes describing what unmerited favor means, you know, and of course this whole idea that you're completely unworthy and undeserving kind of goes against uh, what, what scripture teaches us. I mean, Jane, John chapter one and verse 12 says, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Uh, you know, he, he put into effect the very things that give us this salvation. 
um, <clears throat> and we have a right to become something. And it's like what you were saying, Nick, when God gives us a gift, we have a responsibility toward that gift. I mean, first off, we have to accept that gift. I just read, too many has received him. Well, people think, oh, the receiving part, well, that, that saves me. Well, that's just one of the steps in many uh, that puts us into Jesus Christ. There were many that believed in Christ, but would not confess his name. Were they saved? Can we just be have a secret salvation? No. One of the Christian's great uh, works that he has to do is to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. And, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of things that that boggle my mind when it comes to how people describe grace. It's almost like they just don't want to take any responsibility at all and want God to do everything and, um, you know, save me in spite of myself. It's a big subject. Uh, maybe it's something we'll come back to at some point, but not to beleaguer the thought. Let's go on to our next question. It's kind of a lengthy one here, but um, let me, uh, uh, we won't be able to fit the entire thing on the screen. Uh, so let me just read. Uh, actually, no, we do have it. Is it wrong to suggest that someone who has passed did not make it to heaven because of their sinful lifestyle that they did not change? I find it difficult to know someone lives wrong but suggests that they have gone to heaven because it seems that it misleads others into thinking those sinful habits are okay and you can still go to heaven. All right. Uh, you know, when people are writing these questions, I know that sometimes they have thoughts in their minds and we read them in retrospect and think, well, what do they mean when they say some of these things? And I guess all we can really do is break it down in regard to uh, answering it slowly and methodically. Um, let's just start at the beginning. Is it wrong to suggest that someone whose past did not make it to heaven because of their sinful lifestyle? They did not change. I think that answers the entire question, but what are your thoughts, guys? I, you know, typically, um, I think we're probably not really authorized uh, on a several different levels to say anything about somebody's eternal destination. Um, first and foremost, if, if we understand the scriptures correctly in places like John chapter 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come back and take you there. Nobody's in heaven or hell yet. You know, that. Uh, so let's kind of take that off the table and say, at least from a statement like that, we might not uh, really see anybody in heaven or hell yet. Um, I like to call this the biggest lie a preacher's ever tell is that every funeral, I've never been to a funeral of somebody who's going to hell. You know, I've, uh, every funeral I've been to, oh, they're, you know, I, and I've met, so I've seen some pretty despicable behaving people that, oh, they're in heaven now, you know, and, and conversations like that. And, and obviously people are saying that just to bring comfort to a family, but uh, they didn't get a phone call from God saying, hey, he made it, you know, don't worry. There's no sense of that knowledge. Nobody, nobody's speaking that way. We don't know. Uh, exactly how somebody is uh, connected with God or not connected with God necessarily. All we really see are the fruits of those things. Uh, you know, we say, well, the, the, they had the fruits of obedience. They had the fruits of repentance, things like that. And we can have hope uh, that they uh, will be uh, they will be saved on the day of resurrection. That's really probably the best thing we can say. Uh, conversely, if somebody has the fruits of sinful conduct, the works of the flesh, then we don't have hope. Uh, that they are going to be uh, uh, saved on that day. And frankly, anything else, I always think of James chapter four and verse 11. He says, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother, speaks evil of the law, judges the law. If you judge the law, you're, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Uh, he says, there's one lawgiver able to save and destroy. 
I like that passage, although he's kind of just talking about the way we talk about each other now, because he's also saying, you know, God is the judge. You know, God is the one who makes that ultimate determination. Uh, God told Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. He's the one who will decide. Um, and even though uh, we are given strong indications by the fruits of people's conduct, what that decision might be, because God has told us what he's going to be judging us by, ultimately God will be the one to judge that, not man. And we have to be very careful not to uh, tread into God's territory. Uh, anytime I have the opportunity to speak about somebody who has passed on, I, I just talk about the hope that they may have left us. They've left us great hope by their faith, by, by their apparent faithfulness, by their dedication, by their good works, uh, that, uh, that they will inherit life on the day of resurrection. Uh, and if they haven't given us that hope, uh, maybe I just speak about the idea that, you know, they, they would want us to be doing the same if uh, they could speak to us now. So I think it's wrong to suggest that, but I think it's wrong to suggest anything as far as what we know about the eternal destination of anyone. Yeah, the the first located work I was a part of within the first two years, I want to say I preached at least three funerals. And I just really early on, I just kind of set within my mind, I don't want to preach someone into heaven. And I don't want to preach someone to hell. Um, that's as Brian said so perfectly, that's that's not for me to judge. That's not for me to say. But it, it does make me think of a funeral I went to years ago, and I'm not mentioning any names. That uh, it was a brother that just wrestled with alcoholism for a long time. Uh, did a whole lot better when his mother was alive, uh, but once she died, he kind of really started falling down to that pit again. Um, as I understood it, when he died, it was just it was in a bad situation, and it didn't really look good. That was one of the saddest funerals I've ever been to. But it, there wasn't a whole lot of moaning and wailing. And the sad thing about that is is because everybody kind of knew what had happened and, you know, kind of understood how, how bad this was. And it really was the, the brother who preached that funeral. Uh, all he could do was get up there and say, well, here is his life and here's what he did. And, uh, you know, we, we can learn from this. And, uh, and that's, you know, it, 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 obviously one of the big uh, uh, passages that you could look to in, uh, in terms of funerals. I, I, I always love Ecclesiastes 7 for this, right? Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Uh, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Um the funeral is not for this dead person. The funeral is for those who are there. And so what can we learn from this person's life? And I need to be applying those things to myself. Um, you know, I, I've heard, I've been present of, of uh, you know, other preachers praying with the family before the funeral and, and, uh, I just was so respectful of one preacher uh, saying, uh, we, we hope, Lord, that this event will make some people in this family think about the, their need to change. And uh, I thought that was just so bold and, and strong and needed uh, that that was just so, so useful. There are ways that we can use this to reach people and talk to people. That's the point. 
I, I, what I do or say, you know, obviously has no bearing on uh, where this person goes. They're with the Lord. Uh, they're in his hands. The Lord is just. The Lord is fair. And he will make the right determination in terms of what happens to them. But for us, we need to learn the lessons. We need to learn, look and see, okay, what kind of life was this? And, uh, and live our lives accordingly. I get the privilege of preaching several funerals, even for people I've never even met. Um, I have, I guess, got on speed dial at the local funeral home uh, because when a family comes in, they don't have a minister. Uh, the funeral home has uh, been willing to contact me and I get to meet with the family and I get to talk with them. And, and so I, I get put in this position quite often and regarding, I don't know who this person was. Uh, coming up on the on the funeral and and I I learned a long time ago that like Stephen said the the funeral is not for the dead person but it is for the living and I think it's twofold one uh, funerals bring closure for the family who are struggling and they are suffering emotionally and this is an opportunity for them to say goodbye and and I do my best to help them facilitate that uh, I. I spend some time before the funeral asking them, well, tell me about your loved one. Well, who was your dad like? You know, what was your dad like? What was your mom like? And, and let them, you know, relish in those uh, pleasant memories that they had with them. And then I will use that material to help me uh, come up with a, a, a sermon of sorts to, to talk about their deceased loved one uh, there publicly and and uh you know the you know let them say goodbye in a, in a very positive way but at the same time like stephen said this is an opportunity to preach the gospel and and i would be very negligent as a minister of the gospel if i didn't use the opportunity to draw their attention to that moment and so at the beginning i speak the positive things about their loved one but i will pivot um and 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 I do it in such a way that I don't preach the person in heaven or hell. I pivot to the point saying, well, let's talk about, you know, why did your loved one die? Your loved one died because there's a curse upon us all. There's sin. You know, going back, it's our common conversation all day long today. And, and I talk about, well, why does sin come? And what is the answer to sin? Well, that's Jesus Christ. And, and so he has given us victory over death. And we can have that hope. And and I end with saying to the to the effect that their loved one, um, their loved one wants them to be in that resurrection when that when the Lord comes again and we are raised from the dead. Their loved one wants you there beside Jesus Christ. And so come and talk with me afterwards, and let's talk about this very important subject. And so that's how I uh, approach a funeral. Uh, I know it's an opportunity for healing for them emotionally, but they need to hear the answer to, uh, you know, how do you truly address the suffering that they that they just experienced? And the only answer is Jesus Christ. Well, the first funeral I was ever asked to preach in my youth was uh, for an atheist. <laughs> now, his family were Christians and they were faithful people to God. And I focused mostly upon his uh, accomplishments in this world because there were no accomplishments spiritually. 
uh, with the exception of the fact of the family that he left behind. So I put the focus on them quite a bit. But uh, when we have confidence in someone, let's look at the other side of this as well, especially when we worship with people and we know them and we know their faith. Uh, I've been surprised a lot of times to go to uh, you know, funeral or meet with a family and talk very highly about their loved one from my perspective, from what I knew, and to have them look at me just like, eh, okay, you know, almost like they're saying, well, you didn't know him like we did kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's very disturbing sometimes to see the way that people people behave. And then you have people that just aren't godly in any respects that just automatically want that home in heaven with God. Most preachers use the opportunity to bring a message at a funeral to preach the gospel. I've got no problem with that whatsoever. Um, most funerals, of course, need to center around the, the the loved one that has passed. But where's our confidence? And I go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, where I believe in a passage like this, we have a confidence because these people were dealing with persecution. They had people around them that were whose lives were being taken. And there are some people that are saying, what's the point of all this, you know, if, if the end is just death and we all end up the same way anyway? People get a little philosophical about that particular aspect of life. But Paul the Apostle says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I think that's very interesting there because uh, like one of you fellows talked about, you know, the, the way that people... Uh, you know, go into a memorial or a funeral situation, you can kind of see where their hope is. Uh, I went to two funerals in one week where one was a, um, you know, a Christian, good man, you know, lived out his life. Uh, we walked in there and it was like a family reunion. Uh, we all kind of laughed and joked and shared stories about the, the man that we knew and loved. And uh, we had a confidence that here's a man that's going to have a home in heaven with God someday on that day of judgment. And we want to follow in his pattern. And it's not that we have to sit back and just, you know, just say, well, you know, if he was faithful or if he was faithful in our eyes and, and, you know, we're not the judge, God is the judge. But the point is, is that we follow the example of the good things that we see before us. And we applaud that in these individuals. Well, we were actually told y'all need to calm down a little bit. This is a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget that. But a few days later, I went to another funeral of a good Christian woman and uh, had confidence in her faith. But none of her family had become Christians. Uh, they did not follow in her example. They talked about what a good woman she was and so on. But I'd never heard so much grieving and wailing. I mean, literally wailing uh, from the grief that these people had. Because I go back to First Thessalonians 4. They had no hope. So where is our hope? All right. There was a statement I once heard, I think, that we could end the program with. And it's like, live your life in such a way that the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. <laughs> and not that we would anyway, but a lot do. A lot do. As we'd like to use the term, you know, preaching people into heaven. Well, we can't do that. I can only have confidence in what I have confidence in. But the scripture goes on to say, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So if you want to be in Jesus, then you need to be in Jesus now. You need to be in Christ, baptized into Christ, having your sins washed away, be a part of his church, that death cult as the atheists like to call us, and prepare for your death. 
prepare for the end of this life because this body may die, but you will not. The only true death, the only true death is to be separated in your relationship with God in the end. And that's not the kind of death that you want. This body, most of us can't wait to leave it. But ultimately, we're going to have an eternal body to be with God forever. And then the end of the verse continues to say, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we hope that these things will be a comfort to you. Thank you guys for the comments and uh, the good study we've had today on this uh, wide range of subjects, but yet they all seem to kind of tie back into each other, don't they? As a lot of Bible topics do. Any last thoughts before we close our program today? All right. Look forward to seeing you hopefully next week if the Lord wills. Have a good week ahead. If uh, for our listening audience, if you are out there and um, you're searching for the truth. If you're searching for a church, reach out to us and let us know. We'd be happy to pass along any information that we might have about preachers and teachers that we know in various areas all over this world. Uh, just reach out to questions at answeringreligiousera.com and post your questions uh, for our next program as we answer your questions on the live Bible Q&A. And then don't forget, next Tuesday, we also have a Bible study entitled Why I Believe, as we look at various aspects of our faith, why we believe the things that we do, and uh, we hope to share that with you on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time. And don't forget that these programs also air in a podcast uh, after the program airs. But speaking of podcasts, start your day with The Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan, Monday through Friday, as early as 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We want to thank you for joining us in our program today. Thank you for the good questions. If we didn't get to your question, just hang on. Uh, we'll get to them eventually, and we thank you, and we will look forward to seeing you next time on Answering Religious Error.